So Mork and I did so many things together, but unfortunately, he was attacked a total of 10 times in our two and a half year career. And by dogs that were not trained to be in public places, they were poorly trained um, dogs, you know, that people were bringing to Target or other big box stores. Hi, I'm Heidi Harriet. Welcome to Animal Tales, where we're going to talk about people who love, care for, and work with animals. Today's conversation is about a topic I am very passionate about, service dogs. And within that, the role of fake service dogs and how dangerous and even illegal that is. In the conversation, you're going to hear from a woman whose service dog was put out of service after being attacked 10 times in just two years. Totally unacceptable. Wallace Brosman is the Communications and Advocacy Coordinator for Canine Companions. She lives this day in and day out and advocates for others who depend on their service animals. These absolutely amazing dogs who help folks with disabilities find freedom and independence. So Wallace, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So why don't you tell us what your role is with Canine Companions? I'd be happy to. So I, my role is really um, sort of three parts. So my title is that I'm the Communications and Advocacy Coordinator, which means that I am actually the lead storyteller for our organization. I write all the, the stories of our teams and our donors and our volunteers um, and all of the written materials across the country. But I also um, head up our advocacy initiatives at Canine Companions, um, which includes our grassroots advocacy, some, um, you know, legislative pieces, and a lot of it has to do with actually educational advocacy around service dog access and um, fraudulent service dog. But there's a third part to this whole situation because I'm actually a three-time uh, service dog graduate from Canaan Companions as well. I currently have my third service dog, a yellow lab named Renata. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So you're in a role um, providing adv- advocacy, and I know it says lead storyteller, which I love. And you also um, have a service dog, so you really understand. It probably brings a wonderful perspective uh, to your role, and uh, no doubt very appreciated by the folks who um, use service dogs. I see that Canine Companions is the largest provider of service dogs. Is that in the United States? Um, it- Canine Companions is the largest provider of service dogs. We have six regional centers in the United States. Um, I believe there are no other organizations in the world that have more than that, which would make us the the uh, largest. We also um, actually came up with the concept of a service dog for people with physical disabilities almost 50 years ago. So we, wow. we started that um, really important path towards providing independence for people with physical disabilities. That's amazing. That's fantastic. I'd like you to clarify for us. This is an issue I'm really passionate about. I'm um, 
don't have any personal experience with service dogs. I'm an animal trainer, and my daughter and I raised a puppy uh, when she was a teenager. I can't I can't express enough what a wonderful opportunity that is, and especially if you don't want to have a dog uh, for 14 or 15 years. It's a wonderful way to get involved, to learn how to really train an animal because you get great information and guides on that. And we got an eight-week-old puppy and kept it till it was 14 months, and it was such a wonderful experience. But I'm passionate about this, too, because we have so many um, abuses of this system, and it, it's very upsetting to me. So help us help us define the difference between a service dog, a therapy dog, and an emotional support animal. I would be happy to. So when we're talking about in places of public accommodation, so let's say a movie theater or a restaurant, um, those fall under the Americans with Disabilities Act Title Three. And I'm not going to get too legal on you. Don't don't worry. Okay. But Title Three is what actually defines a service animal as we tend to think of them when, when we're discussing service animals. So a service animal is a dog or sometimes a miniature horse. Now, this is very rare, but a dog or a miniature horse that is specifically trained in tasks that directly mitigate a handler's disability. That's really important because it, what you've got there is a person with a disability. You have a trained dog you have tasks that are directly related to that handler's disability. That's the, the big key piece for um, defining service dogs under uh, the ADA. We then go to emotional support animals, which I think there's a lot of confusion that people don't really know the difference, as you said, between these different categories. So emotional support animals are pets, and they can be any species or breed, um, you know, uh, there, there's currently one that's been making the round of the news that's an alligator. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how, how comforting he, he is, but the role of an emotional support animal is quite different to a service animal. So again, it's a pet. It's not trained in any specific task. What is happening is that it's literally providing a comforting presence to a person with um, a mental health disability. So again, we're not just talking about it's happier in my life when there's a dog because we all know how much we, a difference a dog makes in general. This is um, an accommodation for a mental health disability that allows someone to live in you know, a, an apartment or a college dorm because they need that help. However, Emotional support animals, because they're not trained in specific tasks and they're not not required to be trained really at all, they don't have the same access rights in public places as service dogs. Um, Namely, they don't have any public access rights. They should should not be going into places of public accommodation. Uh, Lastly, therapy dogs are another um, big category of dogs that we, people see in their communities, um, you know, wearing vests, and it's another confusing piece. So therapy dogs, I like to consider, uh, they're sort of like an emotional support animal for many people. If you think about that, they, they are going into a group or facility with permission with the goal of providing comfort. 
they're not assisting with, um, you know, rehabilitation. There are dogs called that we at Camp Independence place called facility dogs, and those are trained more like service dogs for many individuals where they're doing a job and using these tasks to improve clinical outcomes, whereas a therapy dog is there for the comfort of whatever group of people they are serving. And um, neither facility dogs nor therapy dogs have rights to go into public places that they are not specifically permitted by either like the facility or the place that they do their, their job. Um, and so it's important to think about therapy dogs, which are playing an important role, but recognizing that they are not, um, they're not really trained to go into any sort of environment the way that a service dog would be. I mean, you're talking amusement parks to scary movies to planes and trains. I mean, service dogs start at, as you said, with puppy raising, eight weeks old socialization starts then. And therapy dogs don't have that kind of uh, training. Right. You mentioned where they're able to go in, and I am a horse trainer, and I work at equestrian theaters, and also circuses or indoor performance venues. And often we have this issue where they're trying to bring in dogs. And again, I happen to be an animal trainer, and I can recognize a trained dog, certainly a service dog, very easily. They're very well trained. They look ahead, and they look at their their owner, the person that they're helping so it's it's an ongoing issue, and when they're around the animals, like at fairs or these equestrian theaters, the untrained dogs particularly get very riled up around the other animals, you know, and start barking and want to nip at their heels, and so it becomes unsafe. I know that you and I talked about the fact you do have uh, a service dog. This is your third one. You have a, an unfortunate story and a real-life experience with how folks who are, are bringing in dogs that are not service dogs affect your life. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to, to share the story. So, like you said, I'm on my third service dog. My second service dog didn't get to work as long as he should have, and um, his name was Mork. And Mork was a fantastic service dog. He, like my other two, um, I taught all of his commands in um, American Sign Language, which is my primary language. We put in a lot of work. We did so many things together, traveling all around the country. So Mork and I did so many things together, but unfortunately, he was attacked a total of 10 times in our two and a half year career and by dogs that were not trained to be in public places. They were poorly trained um, dogs, you know, that people were bringing to Target or other big box stores. And he got really, really um, emotionally sort of encumbered by these, these dogs. So not only was he physically in altercations, but he began to get extremely hypervigilant and anxious that we were going to run into a dog. And in fact, I did as well. And I was left with actually a fear of dogs. And as someone who, you know, works at Canine Companions, loves dogs, I still, I if I see a dog in a, in a public place that is, you know, even if they're trained, it takes me a minute to say, okay, they're safe at least. 
if I see a dog in a public place, I stop and I don't know how to, what to do. And Mork had the same experience to the point that he actually couldn't continue to work with me. He had to retire at age four and a half when we should have had easily another eight years together. Um, And I think a lot of people don't realize that this is an outcome that actually happens. I think there's sort of like this specter of something bad could happen to legitimate service dogs, but they're not recognizing that there are actual dogs and actual people with disabilities who are experiencing the effects of um, service dog fraud in this very um, important way that is limiting independence and your ability to even just simply get up in the morning. It's it's an unbelievable story. It You're right. We, we, at least I think about it, and I do know what can happen, and you've experienced it actually happening. I'm, I'm really bothered by this because I see not only um, dogs who are on the aggressive side, they always say they're wagging their tail, like about their dog. I, I've been around enough animals in my life that wagging their tail does not necessarily mean they're in a happy mood or it can also mean they're in a mode of, you know, vigilance or and or attack. And all, not only are they going towards other dogs and this is happening daily, even aside from service dogs, just attacking other people's dogs, but also little kids are going down and putting their faces in front of strange dogs and I'm... My husband's at the point he doesn't like to go out with me because I'm constantly like, oh, no, no, it just scares me so much. So I'm so sorry that you've been through this. And uh, I want to I want to switch over now to talking about how uh, service dogs are trained. Can you tell us a little bit about the training of the dogs? What goes into uh, the people who puppy raise and then what are the next steps? Absolutely. I can tell you how we do things at Canine Companions, and it's a great program. There's a reason why I've had three dogs. So our dogs are actually, they start out, they're born into the homes of volunteers who care for the, um, the mothers and the litters. And socialization starts at day one. We're talking every day, introducing new sight, uh, new smells, new sounds, new sensations, um, and really getting that socialization and exposure starting really young in a, an age-appropriate way. At eight weeks, each of these puppies goes out across the country to a volunteer puppy raiser like yourself and um, starts a journey that about 14 to 18 months Um, a really critical exposure to the world around them that they may see as a working service dog, as well as these um, uh, building up confidence around experiences. It's not simply going out in public and and coming home or learning specific um, cues to sit and, and lay down. It's actually setting the foundation for their next stage, which is professional training by Canon Companions, uh, professional training staff. And our training staff, again, it's we have six regions, so whatever region is closest is usually where the dog will go for their professional training. They then come in and they're evaluated for their temperament, for their health, um, their willingness to work, 
all of the characteristics that not only produce, you know, a healthy service dog, but a happy service dog too. We want these dogs to want to work. It's not, it's, it's not something that we force any dog to do. And so they're evaluated and they start right from, you know, working on sitting and laying down and just really getting the basics. So we are still on that same foundation and slowly they add in new tasks that go all the way up to pulling manual wheelchairs, tugging open doors, um, alerting to sounds in the environment that someone who's deaf or hard, hard of hearing cannot hear, um, or interrupting um, flashbacks and anxiety for a veteran who's living with post-traumatic stress disorder. And that process is about six to nine months. And then they get to go into what we call team training, which is two weeks where essentially the dogs are already trained, but we're inviting students with disabilities to come into our facilities for two weeks to learn how to handle a dog, as well as to find a dog that's going to become theirs and bond with them and start establishing that working relationship. And really what we kind of view team training as is, you know, time to get to know how to use your dog and it's really, it's a magical thing to, to realize that there are these dogs that have been going through all of this. And then all of a sudden you show up to, to this, this class and on, you know, the second or third day, they hand you this dog and they say, well, here, you've been matched with service dog Caspin, which is my first service dog. And realizing that this was going to be the moment that your life changes because it really does. And, you know, it, it goes on beyond that. After team training, there's, you know, a great graduation where you finally get to meet with the puppy raisers like like you and your daughter to, to connect and form family bonds from all of this. And then you start going into the process with canine companions where, you know, we're in touch with our clients throughout the entire placement. We're there to provide follow-up services totally free where it's shoot them an email and they will give you a call or email you back and walk you through any question that's as small as, you know, how much can I go up on my dog food for my service dog to, hey, I'm really having a problem with training X and can you provide that, you know, professional point of view? And it's great. So that's everything that goes into creating these teams all the way through retirement and we start it all over again. I'm. This is just fascinating, and uh, I can hear in your voice, and I'm looking at you, seeing your face, how how magical this is and what it means to you. I'm talking with uh, Wallace Brosman, the communications and advocacy coordinator for Canine Companions, explaining uh, how amazing it is the way these service dogs are trained. And Wallace, you you uh, alluded to it, but. What did it mean to you when you got your first service dog? It was Caspin, I believe? Yes, my first service dog was Caspin, and he really changed everything for me. I have a couple of disabilities, and the one that impacts me the most is called dystonia, and it impacts all of the muscles, including my voice, um, in my body. And so there are times where my muscles spasm and seize up and are doing things that they want to do instead of what I want them to do, which renders me essentially stuck in the spot that I'm in. Hmm. And before I got Caspin, my my muscle spasms were getting so bad that I had to actually move back in with my 
dad because I was really not able to take care of myself. And I was using a power wheelchair at that time because it was too unreliable for me to use a manual wheelchair. So lo and behold, I meet Caspin, who was this just beautiful gem of a service dog. He was smart and goofy and handsome, and he was the full package. He was like a George Clooney of, of service <laughs> dogs. Um, and as soon as I found out that he was going to be my dog, I sobbed. I was sobbing with joy because I knew that my life was going to change with him. And I, I can tell you that he saved my life four days after we got home. He absolutely uh, blew me away. To this day, this is, you know, 13 years ago. Um, and he continued to save and change the trajectory of my life. Every day that I had him, you know, all the way until when he passed away. And um, the, the sort of magic of it is that you don't even know what you can do until you can do it. And that's what Caspin really meant to me. I, didn't, I did not return back to my dad's house after I received Caspin. I stayed in California, which was 3,000 miles away. And I didn't go and even visit family for another year because I was off doing things. I was busy. We had places to go, people to see, and things to do. And uh, that's the kind of the, the definition and essence of canine companions, right? It's suddenly you, you end up on this path that you didn't even know existed before. That's, that is truly magical. I Again, I saw a little bit of it when we were doing the puppy raising. And by the way, our puppy's name was Tala, this was about uh, 10, 15 years ago, and we got handed this beautiful little black puppy, a little lab puppy, and I know they have amazing breeding programs, so they're breeding these just just for all the wonderful traits, obviously. Mm-hmm. And she was a hyper little thing, but and we got our little black start, our little cape for her. She was a little black puppy. We had our little canine companion starter cape. And we would respectfully ask businesses once we were allowed, which I think was a few weeks into it, to start socializing her if we could take her in places. So, you know, again, as an animal trainer and somebody who's very cognizant of what seems to be going on in this in this uh, space with the service dogs and the fake service dogs, I wanted to be very respectful, but life life changing just on that front. So I can even imagine. I think you're doing a wonderful job of articulating that. So Wallace, as as you're saying that, what do you want people to be mindful of that are, you know, hearing your story and hearing about service dogs? And one, what could they do to be part of the solution? What what What's out there that they could do? Obviously, puppy raising. What else can they do if they maybe can't do that, but they really want to learn more about this? There are plenty of ways that people can support service dog organizations like Canon Companions that don't involve raising a puppy, although we always need puppy raisers. So, you know, anyone who's out there and wants uh, a ball of fluff coming their way, um, definitely check out our website at canine.org. But we have a few ways that I recommend getting involved if this issue is something that is really close to your heart. Um, Like I said, I work with our advocacy program. 
it's a pretty new program over the past couple of years, but um, having people able to amplify our voice and our call for causes that are important to um, Canine Companions clients is really important. Um, so if whether it's signing a petition or even going as far as providing testimony, um, we do have an advocacy program um, that people can join and participate in as much or as little as they want to. Um, in addition to that, we've got a ton of volunteer opportunities from, you know, bathing dogs or walking dogs on one of our campuses to helping with events um, or volunteering to lead, you know, one of our 51 chap- volunteer chapters. But there's really a lot of ways to get involved. I think the most important thing to me as a person with a disability who use, use excuse me, person with a disability who utilizes a service job is educating yourself so that you know what's right and what might not be quite as right. And that includes knowing the right and appropriate way to approach someone with a dog in a public place so that there's not the assumption that this must be a fake service dog or a real service dog, but really knowing the the best way to approach that situation. And I think if we get more education out there, then maybe we'll start to have an impact on, you know, those out-of-control dogs that really are causing true harm to people with disabilities. Is there a resource? I, I know canine.org, that'll be in show notes. Is there is that the good resource to go to for people to maybe learn more about this and understand? Yes, I would say that there is a lot of information on the canine.org website. Um, specifically, if you're looking for ways to get involved, um, I would go to canine.org um, slash volunteer, and that should give you a whole bunch of ways that you can get involved in companions. Um, if you're looking for more information on advocacy, definitely check out um, canine.org slash advocate um, and learn more about our, our advocacy program. Terrific. And please, please stop bringing your fake service dogs and creating issues for those who truly need their their dogs and uh, putting these these dogs and individuals at risk. It's just so unacceptable. I'll give you the last word, Wallace. Thank you, Heidi, for having me again. I, I really just hope that people will hear that this problem is something that is fixable if we all just take a moment to understand the reasoning behind it and who it's actually impacting. So thank you for having me and letting me do some education for your platform. Appreciate it. Thank you. What an impactful and important conversation. I feel very emotional about this topic and hearing from Wallace who actually lives this issue made it even more so. We certainly appreciate those folks who need an emotional support animal or just love their dog, but the abuse of the system of these dogs being in places they just don't belong and not adhering to the signage that says only a true service dog. And because most stores don't want to ask people, there's a lot of advantage being taken here. 
So I hope you heard Wallace's plea to be mindful of that. Again, her service dog was put out of service after two years and just so unacceptable. So let's help these folks who have found these amazing service dogs and really pay tribute to them. Get involved. Go see for yourself, as I always say, at a canine companion center near you. Go online to canine.org. I'm Heidi Harriet. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode of Animal Tales. It's really important to me to provide this information, provide the other side of the story about these amazing people and their animals. I'd certainly love your feedback. You can email me, animaltalespodcast at gmail.com. Also, please subscribe, rate and review us, and please share this with others. I hope you'll join me next time for Animal Tales. Animal Tales.